This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense, from Luther until now, that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz, what a huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled Thucydides knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do, the elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave, analyzed all in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit forming pain, mismanagement and grief. We must suffer them all again. Into the neutral air where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man. Each language pours its vain, competitive excuse. But who can live for long in a euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face, and the eternal wrong. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conversations conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. The windiest militant trash important persons shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijitsky wrote about Diaglyph is true of the normal heart, for the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, repeating their mourning vow, I will be true to the wife, I'll concentrate more on my work, and helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our word in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them, of eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. End quote. And this is the famous poem, September 1st, 1939, by W.H. Auden. As you likely noticed, it's a long one. And rather than attempt to analyze and digest it all at once, we'll do this as a two-part explication. The first of its kind on this show, in fact. Now, we've done multi-part episodes before, notably on Charlie Chaplin and Mike Rowe, and Benjamin Franklin as well. But this is our first two-part explication. So let's get to it, shall we? Wyston Hugh Auden was born February 21st, 1907, in York, England. He died September 29th, 1973, in Vienna, Austria, at age 66. He was a British-American poet who spent time in both countries and maintained dual citizenship. He was born to George and Constance Auden and read extensively from his father's library as a child. This, no doubt, fueled his poetic accomplishments, 
and motivated him to understand the world through verse. He lived through World War II in the United States, though he volunteered to return to England at the beginning of the war and was actually drafted into the United States Army, but was ultimately rejected due to medical issues. So, instead, he wrote about the war and myriad other topics in amazing detail. And today's poem is one such poem, and it's one of more than 400 that he wrote in his life. Now, 400 poems may not sound like a lot over the course of an entire lifetime, but a few of those poems are what are considered by people more well-versed, no pun intended, in poetry than I, to be really, truly long poems. Some of them ranging up to book length. So if you thought that today's poem, in its ten stanzas, was long, those are significantly longer. And he later actually restricted the publishing of this poem in his books of poetry as he came to dislike it over time. He spoke very negatively of it, which is interesting because it's wildly popular to this day. And as I said, the poem still persists as an example of writing done at a time of great historic significance. In this case, the beginning of World War II and the German invasion of Poland. And it's been quoted many times since then on momentous days of historical significance, such as September 11th, and I think I even recall seeing it at the outset of the Russo-Ukraine war that's going on as we speak. And, as we always do, we'll use the UNC Chapel Hill Writing Center's template to guide our explication. And as a refresher, their guide, which is actually no longer published in the form that I use it, calls for us to answer six questions, six broad questions. They are, one, what is being dramatized, two, who is the speaker, three, what happens in the poem, four, when does the action occur, five, where is the speaker, and six, why does the speaker feel compelled to speak at this moment? So here's the poem one more time in its entirety, and then we'll focus on the first half or so of it. Quote, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense, from Luther until now, that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz, what a huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled Thucydides knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do. The elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave. Analyzed all in his book. The enlightenment driven away. The habit forming pain. Mismanagement and grief. We must suffer them all again. Into the neutral air where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man. Each language pours its vain, competitive excuse. But who can live for long in a euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face, and the eternal wrong. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conversations conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. The windiest militant trash important persons shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijitsky wrote about Diaglyph is true of the normal heart, for the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, 
The dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow. I will be true to the wife. I'll concentrate more on my work. And helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. The romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street. And the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our word in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light, flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them, of eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. End quote. Now, admittedly, there are some references in this poem with which I was not familiar, and so I had to do some heavy digging to find out what they meant. But, aside from this, as usual, I try to keep from looking at other analyses of the poem itself prior to the episode, so as to do this kind of carte blanche, so to speak, with you here. And before we answer the questions, though, you might find yourself wondering, well, why is the poem called September 1st, 1939? Well, if you're not a history buff or you haven't studied history in a while or you just don't have a mind for dates, some people don't, this was actually the day that Hitler and his Nazi Germans invaded Poland and set in motion what would be just over a six-year war of bloodshed and death that would shape a generation and define a century that we call today World War II. And Auden wrote the poem as a first-hand account of what he saw at the time. Remember, he was born in 1907, so he's 32 at the time that this is going on, fully grown and aware of what is happening. And he knows that this, September 1st, 1939, is an an important date, though he probably doesn't know exactly how important it will be just yet. So, our first question is, what is being dramatized? Well, obviously here, we're reading the thoughts of someone observing a historic moment. And as the speaker points out, this event occurs at the very tail end of the 1930s, something the speaker calls, quote, a low, dishonest decade, end quote. And that's an interesting way to describe a decade, in this case, the 1930s. And you may find yourself wondering why. Well, again, if you're not a history buff, a lot of things happened in the 1930s. The United States and the rest of the world was still reeling from the fallout of World War I. There was a lot of economic hardship. There was the Dust Bowl, and there was the Great Depression, and there was all of the things that happened, the great stock market crashes, and all of those things that led people to be in not the best of of times. I mentioned last week and in previous weeks, the best time to be alive. The 1920s and the 1930s, across the globe, not the best time. So it makes a little bit of sense that Auden would reference this as a low and dishonest decade. And recall that the events that led to this day the invasion of Poland, that is, are very, very dark and foreboding. Not only do you have trouble at home, but you begin to see the writing on the wall. Remember, Hitler served in World War I, came back with a chip on his shoulder, arguably, debatably, historians will debate this, but arguably, Germany was put under extremely heavy sanctions. It put a huge burden on the economy and on the people that lived there, and it left them bitter at the end of World War I. And as a result... The opportunity, the ground was, was laid for someone like Hitler with a chip on his shoulder to end up taking power and ultimately resulting in the beginning of World War I, excuse me, World War II at the end of 1939. 
And we, of course, know how the next six years played out and the horrors that await the author, and the speaker in this case. But the speaker is describing a world about to be shaken to its core after a very lengthy buildup. Many saw this evil coming, but again, just how much evil they saw coming is hard to say. The next question, who is the speaker? It is, I think, Auden himself. He's not trying to hide behind the pages of the poem. This is not a, an exercise in creativity, necessarily. But, in theory, it could be anyone at this time. Newspapers were still big in this day, as was the radio. And imagine waking up on September 1st. Remember, Europe is about six hours ahead of the East Coast, more if you live further out west, and learning that Germany had invaded Poland. And perhaps you saw it coming, perhaps not. Perhaps you wished it not to be true, but it is. This is the speaker. Anyone. Anyone on Friday, September 1st, 1939, witnessing the beginning of the atrocities to come. The next question, what happens in the poem? Well, the poem has two main parts. The first eight stanzas, and the last two. The first eight describe how we got here. The failings of the state, the idea of groupthink, the ignorance of the individual, and the birth of a monster. The speaker references Luther. He is, of course, referring to Martin Luther, a 16th century German monk who helped to fuel the Protestant Reformation and, sadly, later in life expressed harsh anti-Semitism. And the speaker basically says that this has been building up ever since the time of Martin Luther. And he heaps a fair amount of blame on him for what would grow to be this rabid and murderous anti-Semitism made manifest in World War II. The speaker references Linz, which is a town in Austria in which Hitler was born and he grew up. It was actually meant to be a cultural hallmark of the Third Reich. And there is a bridge that still stands there to this day that was commissioned by him as well as many buildings. And the third stanza is about how society doesn't really learn lessons, right? But repeats a, what the speaker refers to as a habit-forming pain and grief. The likes of which they are going through again right now, as people throughout history have. And he uses Thucydides as an early marker of that, reaching all the way back to the 5th century BCE and the books that Thucydides wrote. Basically saying, that guy had it figured out, but we haven't learned. We just keep doing the same thing. The speaker then goes on to question the sprawling and ever-growing cities with their skyscrapers, citing them not as accomplishments, but instead as examples of imperialism and a euphoric dream and an international wrong. The idea being that the ever-present quest for more and better things has led us to take advantage of the world around us, that we lose sight of the important things instead for the material gains. And this, the speaker extends further, stating that the comfortable existence, one of bounty and of bars where the lights never go out and the music never stops as the patrons blindly progress through their lives, never looking their shortcomings or fears in the face, until, that is, a sadistic madman begins to run amok. And I particularly like the use of the phrase bread in bone. And this is bread as in breeding, not bread as in a loaf. But if you look this up, you'll get a definition that says, long established and unlikely to change. The speaker here is alluding to the fact that the evil manifest in this day has been resident in its perpetrators since inception. It's in their bones, 
and therefore particularly difficult to ferret out. And the next few questions are fairly straightforward. The next one is, when does the action occur? Well, I don't know that ever before have we explored a poem where we can nail this one bang on, but the answer's in the title, September 1st, 1939. Where's the speaker? Well, in the very first stanza, the speaker states that they are in a bar on 52nd Street. Perhaps maybe they're reading the newspaper, maybe drinking a coffee or a beer as they're uncovering the news of Hitler's invasion. And interestingly, the speaker refers to the location as a dive in the first stanza, but then later on makes mention of a bar, of course, talking about where the music never stops and the lights never go out, but referring to it more as a fort. And perhaps I'm reading too much into this and connecting dots that need not be connected, but what is an explication but an exploration of the words of someone else for deeper meaning? But here, I think there's a social narrative where the speaker is saying that we all cling to and elevate those things which are vices, in this case a bar, alcohol, partying, lights, and music, and which ultimately may be harmful to us. Why? Because they are familiar. And perhaps this applies not only to bars, dare I say, but to maybe political leaders as well? Hmm, interesting thought. Now why does the speaker feel compelled to speak at this moment? And again, this is fairly self-evident. This is a massive problem. This is a historic moment. And as a point of comparison, let us consider the Russo-Ukraine war and the feelings and discussion that that evoked when Russia unlawfully invaded the Ukraine just last year. As I record this, it's been just over a year since that invasion began. And since then, many, many, many thousands of people have died as a result. Further have been displaced and even more, will probably never go home. And think about the fact that we found out that that might be a thing, something to be concerned about, just a couple of months before it actually happened. Recall Russia massing troops on the Ukraine border, and nobody really being sure what was going on or what wasn't going on. Oftentimes militaries will mass troops for exercises and things of that nature, and if I recall correctly, I think that was actually one of the guises that Putin and his regime used to mask the fact that they were actually planning an invasion. And then the next thing you know, tanks roll across the border, and hostilities begin. And it's been wild pandemonium since then. And again, we only had a couple of months to grow increasingly concerned over this. Hitler's rise to power took years, and many people, though not all and certainly not enough, saw this as almost inevitable something that the speaker points out repeatedly, that it's bred in their bones, that this has momentum, this has been building for hundreds of years, from back in the times of Luther. And now, it's here, in all its horror. And so I think there is a good spot to stop. That's the first half of W.H. Auden's poem, September 1st, 1939. And certainly, there's a lot here to digest, and I'll be honest, this has quickly become one of my favorite poems for its many, many layers and allusions and thought-provoking lines. And I hope you've enjoyed the first half and that you'll join me next week when we examine the second half. Similar, but very different in tone. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com 
download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod. Or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks, as always, for listening.